Well, greetings, brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning we're going to continue our series in 1 Thessalonians. And this is one that I decided to to, uh, set aside as we went through the holidays, uh, because we're dealing with a very delicate subject here today. The title of my message is, uh, For This is the Will of God, Your Sanctification. Uh, We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8, and for the children who would like to make tally marks, whenever I say the word holiness, you can make a little check mark and then count how many times I say that throughout the message, okay? So let's read the passage first. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's word together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word. Lord, help us to see in this passage and others that support this passage your will for us that it is your will that we would be sanctified. I pray, God, that that would be much more meaningful to us by the end of this this, uh, message, and that we would take this with us and share it with others who are trapped in the sin of sexual immorality. And we give you all praise and all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like you to notice the context of our study on making the most of your time. You know, that passage uh, often is dealt with separately, as we did this last uh, week, or a week, two weeks ago. And, uh, but when you see it in context, it's a little different. Not that the meaning changes, but you realize what Paul has in mind as he tells us these things. And so this is an extensive passage. I'm going to read it to you, and you'll notice how the flow of the Apostle Paul's thought uh, follows through. He writes in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us 
an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Can you see how Paul's concern in this passage and his reference to making the most of our time, redeeming our time, uh, is all about this pursuit of holiness, of sanctification. And we're going to look more closely at what that means. But in review of our last message in 1 Thessalonians, you might recall the uh, use of the optative mood in pronouncing blessings upon the church in Thessalonica. First of all, in chapter 3, verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. This word may is what creates what is called the optative mode or mood, and it is a, uh, a way of pronouncing a blessing. And uh, you will see this continuing as Paul prays for the blessing of his own eventual return to Thessalonica to perfect what is lacking in their faith. And he intends to do that by continuing to teach them more and more of the truth. And then in verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. And so Paul prays for the blessing of a great increase in their love for one another and for all men, including the unbelievers who are persecuting them at that time and praying for their salvation. And then finally in verse 13, Paul says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless, in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so we see in this passage that Paul's praying for the blessing of a firm and steady heart 
that remains focused on pleasing God without the distraction of temptation. Now you can see that in this passage, Paul is setting up his confrontation with the cultural sins that are the besetting sins of the church there in Thessalonica. These three blessings uh, track with the theme of faith, hope, and love that we saw Paul begin with in this epistle. And so we see how that word may and this optative mood uh, is actually uh, issuing three distinct blessings to the church. And as we saw, God granted Paul's request. We see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Exactly what he prayed for. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all the persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now, we've just set the stage. Paul has set the stage for what he's going to do next. He is going to address a specific issue of sin in the culture of Thessalonica that is also coming into the relationships within the church in Thessalonica. And uh, this is a, uh, a difficult passage to unpack, especially dealing with an age-integrated congregation. Okay, so I'm going to try my best to be faithful to the Word and still be sensitive to the age and maturity of my audience. Paul sets up his exhortation by reminding the Thessalonian church of the commands that he gave to them through Christ. We see that in verses uh, 1 and 2. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you would abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now when you hear this reference to the commandments of the Lord Jesus, it is almost entirely with regard to Christ's commands to love one another. Paul urges, that is, requests, and he also exhorts, which is to command these young Christians to press forward in their new way of love, love for one another and love for all men, not merely drifting with the culture, but rather striving to stand against the currents of the culture that are swirling all around them. Now, it's never easy to go against the flow of your culture. This is a picture of the Columbia Gorge. It looks like a nice, peaceful, placid lake, doesn't it? And you cannot tell how strong a current is until you try to stand still and resist it. This, this body of water is producing a substantial amount of the electricity for the entire west coast. 
That's how much energy is in the movement of this water. But you can't tell that it's moving like that until you try to resist it. It's so easy to float along in the currents of your current culture. But when you try to take a stand, you feel the full force of the culture piling up against you and trying to push you over, push you back. And so this is what we're dealing with in this passage. Paul is saying, you Thessalonians, you are called by God to be sanctified. And specifically, you are to be uh, resisting this strong current of sexual immorality that is going to try to push you over and which you must resist. This is at the very heart and it's at the very core of what it means to be sanctified. So, what are Jesus' commands? Let's get specific here. In John chapter 13, in verse 34, Jesus says, I give a new commandment to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, what? By this love, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the commandment when you hear John referring to the commandment in, uh, in his epistles later. Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul reiterating this, he says, no, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And that law, the overarching law, as Paul tells us in this context, is love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is kept by simply focusing your attention on loving your neighbor as yourself. And then in Second John, as I was referring to, he, he says, and now I plead with you, lady, now this is referring to the church there, uh, he says, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Very much repeated refrain within the New Testament. God has saved us out of this world which is full of hate and apathy and disregard for the interests of others and called us to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness of all of that by being a people who love one another and who love all with the love of Christ shed abroad in their hearts. Now, that's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul began by saying that you should abound more and more. Abound in what? Well, we saw just before that, in love, in love toward one another. Just as you've received, he says, from how you ought to walk and to please God. Remember in Ephesians, we saw this is how you walk in wisdom, understanding what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? It's to bring love into every relationship. Between a husband and wife, between parents and children, between employers and employees and with your neighbor and all across the board, you bring love into that relationship and sin will cease. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So what is Paul getting at? 
Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, he gets specific. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, before we go any farther, let's define some terms here. Sanctification, what does that mean? It means being set apart for a special purpose. And if you have been set apart for a special purpose by God, then you are what the Bible calls a saint. Now, we live in a confused era in which saints have become this special category within the church, and you have to wait until you've been dead for a while and have performed many miracles, and then you might get nominated and qualified to become a saint. That is entirely unbiblical. If you have been born again by believing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been set apart by God for a special purpose, and that special purpose is to shine as lights in the midst of a dark and and hateful world. You have been set apart to love one another, to love God and to love one another with a pure heart. And so we can look around the room here, and I I can see St. Clayton sitting there. Hey, St. Clayton, how are you doing? Good. We've got St. Luke back there. And this guy's, what's his name? Your son there? Hey, St. Joel. Hi. Every one of you who have trusted in Christ, you are saints. And that means you have been sanctified. You have been set apart for the purpose of God. Now, loving one another purely as God intended is our special purpose for being both created in the first place uh, and redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, where shall we begin this process of sanctification? Um, there's a term that's used theologically, and that is progressive sanctification. That means this doesn't all happen at once. We walk out of our past sins. We repent. uh, We pursue holiness. But we will be struggling. We will have what the Bible calls besetting sins. I like to use the analogy of Lazarus when he's in the tomb. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes to life inside the tomb. But he's all wrapped up in grave clothes. So he comes walking out of the tomb, all wrapped up in these grave clothes. And Jesus turns to the people standing around and says, loose him. And so the process of getting rid of your grave clothes is a team effort. Okay? We need one another. Hey, can you help me get this off? You know, it's tied in the back. I can't reach it. And so we have this fellowship relationship in which we're helping one another take off the grave clothes that are still clinging to us after we've come to life and walked out of the grave into this new life in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a picture for us of why we need one another in the church. It's like the guy, you know, who comes walking out of the bathroom and he's got a long piece of toilet paper stuck to the heel of his foot, you know, and 
He doesn't know it. He can't see it. It's being dragged behind him. He needs a brother who can come up and say, hey, hey, uh, you might want to look down. (laughs) It's very embarrassing when that happens. But that's what fellowship is for. It's for helping one another in our pursuit of holiness. Sanctification, when accomplished, is holiness. Okay? And we're to pursue holiness because it's not going to happen all at once. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 4, he gets specific as to what he means by abstaining from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. In other words, how to control your own body because your body is to be set apart for a special purpose, which is to express God's love uh, toward your neighbor and, and toward God himself. And honor. Now, this word honor <clears throat> has to do with weightiness, something being significant enough to take note of. And so when we honor one another, we are taking uh, inventory of the significance, the importance, the weightiness And so when you honor your father and mother, you're going to listen to what they have to say. You're not going to take it lightly. See, if something's honorable, it's heavy. So if you're going to honor your mom and dad, you're not going to take what they say lightly, but rather you're going to feel the weight of it and let it influence your behavior. If we honor God, it's the same thing. We take his word seriously. We feel the weight of it. We don't take it lightly. Does that all make sense? And so we are to learn how or know how to possess our own vessel, our own body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, in sanctification, being set apart for God's purpose, feeling the importance and the weight of this, and then he contrasts that with the world. He says, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. You'll often hear, whenever the word Gentile shows up in the New Testament, it's often followed with some reference to their ignorance. Now, he's not calling them stupid. Okay, that's, the, that's different. He's saying they're still ignorant. They still don't understand. They still don't know why they've been created. They don't understand what God is doing. They're, in, they're resisting the purposes of God in every area of their lives. And so, therefore, they're indulging themselves in very selfish and self-destructive behavior. And they're doing all of that because they don't know God. And if they knew God, they would see the error of their ways. But this particular sin, notice, is in the passion of lust. Now, the word passion in the Bible, uh, in the Greek, brings to mind the idea of suffering for something. If you believe something is really important, you're willing to suffer for it. And so you might, for instance, if you're trying to start a business, 
you're willing to stay up late, get up early, you know, do all kinds of things and suffer for the pursuit of that business. Now, God tells you not to do that. He says, trust me, you know, I've got your back. You know, you just, you just uh, go to bed and get some sleep and I'll work on it and have it ready for you by morning. So God is, is, is calling us to trust him. But when you believe something's important, and like if you go to missions and you go to some part of the world in which you don't have the conveniences of Western civilization, you're going to suffer. But do you believe it's important enough to get this gospel to these people who are still living in ignorance? If you believe that's truly important, you'll be willing to suffer for it. It will be your passion. Well, these, these uh, ignorant Gentiles are suffering for lust. And you can see that around you in the culture. Now, I'm not going to get specific, but people are doing all kinds of things that hurt themselves because they're trying to get that, that satisfaction through sexual immorality. And so we, we have to feel sorry for people. At the same time, we recognize we must not walk in those paths. Not anymore. So our first step toward practical sanctification is to gain self-control over our own bodies. And this brings us to what's called the elephant in the room. Have you ever heard that phrase? We need to address the elephant in the room. Well, it looks something like this. These, this, this married couple here, they're just ignoring the elephant in the room. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to look up and uh, acknowledge it. We're just going to act like it's not there. But it's an elephant in the room. And this is what we need to deal with in this passage, the elephant in the room. Sanctification must begin by addressing the huge problem that exists at the heart of every pagan culture. To the degree that a culture is pagan, that means ungodly, it's either pre-Christian or post-Christian, but it's a culture in which God is defied, denied. He doesn't exist. He's not important. What he has said in his word does not matter. To the degree that a culture becomes pagan, it will be overwhelmed with sexual immorality. Followers of Christ must begin with repentance for past sexual immorality and all other kinds of immorality and sin. But then they must continue by gaining self-control over their own physical passions so as to stop, and this is where love comes in, to stop exploiting one another sexually. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to express your sexuality. And Paul is saying, you've got to stop that wrong way. In a predominantly pagan culture, sex often dominates all of life. Whether it's just privately, as in some, you know, some of the Southern, South American cultures, and you, know, you have this prevalence of immorality, mistresses, and all kinds of stuff, and, and it's kind of all behind closed doors. And then they can maintain this image of being very, you know, 
uh, even godly. You know. But this hypocrisy, there's a, there's a whole layer of corruption in the society in which people don't honestly pursue holiness. They only want to have the, the appearance of godliness, but not the power behind true godliness. And so it, dom- it dominates life. And when the culture becomes really, really pagan, they begin to put their sin out on display and take pride in their sin. Be, turn it into art, turn it into theater, turn it into film. You know, they begin to make that immorality uh, some kind of a, a god which they worship and sacrifice for. As our post-Christian culture becomes more and more pagan, we can expect sexual immorality to become an overwhelming flood. And just like the flood we saw in a moment ago with the Columbia River and the, and the flooding, it's hard to resist a flood. It's hard. We need the power of the Holy Spirit and deep conviction that this is the will of God in order to say no to this kind of sin. And, and let me explain for a moment why it's so hard to say no to this sin. And it is because God created sexual intimacy. And our physical bodies long for this. We want, just like we want food. We yearn for it. We have an appetite for it. We, we feel dissatisfied without it. And God has intended for that, that desire to be satisfied, but only within the bounds of a lifelong commitment in marriage. God wants us to have that. He made it. He created it. He's not a prude. In fact, we see throughout history that God is the one calling us to be fruitful and multiply. And that doesn't happen without sex. God is commanding us to get involved in this intimacy that results in children. Whether it was in the Garden of Eden or whether it was after the flood with Noah. In Genesis chapter 35, 11, and God said to them, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And none of that happens without this gift of sexual intimacy with a wife and a husband committed to one another for life in marriage. So sex is God's idea, not ours. He intends for sexual intimacy within the loving marriage to result in great joy and for younger couples to also result in an abundance of children who are conceived and born for his glory. So the reason it's so hard to say no to this particular sin, and I want to say this carefully, your body will betray you. Your, your, you may want in your heart to please God. You may want in your mind to obey God. But your body says, nah, I don't want to do that. I want to have fun. And the result is, is you are fighting against a gift of God in your own body, and God is saying through the Apostle Paul, 
You've got to learn to control that. You have to be able to maintain control of your vessel, this physical body, in order not to abuse yourself or others in this regard. Now, the greater the potential for good that a gift from God offers, the greater its harm will be when it is abused and used wrongfully. In James chapter 117, we read, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That means his gifts are purely good. We are the ones who turn them to being instruments of sin, not God. Whenever we twist God's good and perfect gifts to serve our own selfishness and greed, we turn them into destructive forces. And again, uh, you know, the, the scholar in me would like to just pull out all kinds of pictures and show you things and say, this is what's going on, folks, but we can't do that, and I won't do that. But I want you to know that the most horrible crimes on the planet, trafficking and all kinds of other things, abortion, it's all happening because people are taking God's good gift and twisting it and turning it into an instrument of destruction. The world turns everything God has created into a means of sinful self-indulgence and self-destructive addictions. Money, power, and sex. These are three of the most... They are all gifts from God. Do you realize that? Money is a good thing when used with love. Power is a good thing when it's used with love. Sex is a good thing when it's used with love. But they can be perverted and used not in love, but in exploitation and cruelty. Every gift from God can also be rescued from its evil uses. And it's all done simply by allowing love to guide the way in which it's used and the way in which it's enjoyed. And God tells us he's created all of these things for us to enjoy. But we have to enjoy them in the way he intended and for his purposes. Whenever we walk away from his purpose, whenever we separate the pleasures of God that he's created from the purposes of God for those created things, they become incredibly evil. True love requires self-control. True love requires self-control. Do you want to be a loving person? It begins with self-control. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, Paul writes this, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Now this is an interesting passage, and we have to try to figure out, now what does Paul have in his mind as he writes this? The grammatical, historical interpretation of this passage is the correct interpretation. So we have to kind of do a little digging and do a little thinking here to say, okay, what's he talking about? 
Has he switched his topic? No. This passage seems, and I use the word seems because I could be wrong. I'm, I'm taking a step out and saying, based on my study of God's word and my life experience, both as a as a uh, Christian and from before I was a Christian, living in Southern California, okay, a whole lot of sinning going on, okay. So, what I see in this passage is that he's referring to the difficulty, the husbands and fathers of a wife and daughters have in protecting their wives and daughters from a culture given over to seduction and rape. That is why he addresses his comment to, says that you should not take advantage of and defraud your brother in this matter. Why would he address the brother rather than the the wife and the daughters? Because in this culture, as well as in many other cultures around the world, even up to this date, wives and, and daughters are considered to be the responsibility of their husbands and their brothers. To defend them and protect them from the misbehavior even of family friends. Now this gets a little weird, but most of the abuse that happens happens within a family relationship where, some, where people know one another. It's not the stranger breaking in. It's the uncle. It's the aunt. It's the stepbrother or the stepsister. And so we have a situation in which people are so given over to... They're so used to giving over themselves to their passions that when they're in a situation, even with a family member, they can take advantage of that and, and exploit it and, and do terrible, terrible harm. And Paul is saying to these brothers in Christ, these men in Christ, that you should not take advantage of or defraud your brother in this matter. Don't do harm in your family relationships. And he warns them, the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. We're dealing with Thessalonica during the Roman Empire. They have no culture of chastity. They have no culture of honoring women and, and, and not attempting to exploit their weaknesses. And so Paul is saying to the men of the church, don't defraud one another by misbehaving toward their wife or children. I know that's a, an ugly thing to have to think about, but that's what Paul's saying here. The male family members and neighbors often claim that they couldn't help themselves. Now, we live in Western civilization, and we still live in the afterglow of Christian morality. So we get upset when we read about uh, people from another culture in Great Britain uh, during a festival uh, taking women into the alleys and raping them and thinking uh, that it was not their fault because they couldn't help themselves because these women were all dressed immodestly. And so they just, you know, they came from a culture in which if you dress like that, 
you were, quote, asking for it. And so we see all of this terrible sin going on, and the men responsible are saying, I couldn't help myself. It was her fault. Now that's not an excuse. That's not an acceptable excuse. But we can see that in many of the cultures around the world, there is still this mindset that men are out of control and you just kind of have to stay away from them when they get into that heat of passion. This claim of male helplessness is still common in countries around the world. And that's why you're warned when you travel internationally. The, uh, the government will warn you about what is safe and what's not safe, especially for women. But how could this be a problem in Christ's church? I mean, we're believers. We have given our hearts to Jesus. When you're living in a pagan culture where crimes of passion are wink and nod acceptable, as they have been in our culture in, in many ways, and especially in the Hollywood scene, you know, people are doing things and they just kind of wink and nod, and then later they come out and say, that's wrong. But it took a movement to raise awareness of what was happening. Then it will also happen in the church. Because people who come to church are people who are coming to Christ and beginning the adventure of pursuing holiness, and they haven't yet arrived. None of us have arrived. We are all still pursuing holiness. And so we have to understand that even within the church, you're going to have this kind of behavior. Many scandals in recent years have been traced to this kind of behavior going on not just within the congregation, but even on the pastoral staff. So Paul is not uh, out of bounds to be addressing us in this way. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 4, it seems to bear out what I'm saying about verse 6. Now, read this verse again in light of what he's saying in chapter 4, verse 6 that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, don't say, I couldn't help myself. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You can. If it's a commandment of God, then you can do it. God does not command us to do things we can't do. Because he's given us his Holy Spirit, he's given us his word, he's given us the fellowship of the church. He's given us wives and husbands. He's given us enough prosperity that we're able to enjoy a good life. He's given us all these wonderful things. We don't have to yield to this kind of temptation. And when we do, we need to repent of it and say, God, let's begin again as I pursue what's pleasing to you. Paul seems to be confronting a deeply entrenched culture of sexual sin that continues to be a besetting sin in the lives of Christians even to this day. And what is the alternative? What is the solution? What's the cure? The answer is love. That might seem simplistic, if I don't explain it a little bit, it might seem like I'm some Beatles song. All you need is love. 
Well, the truth is every sin is nullified by love. Look at Romans 13 and verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. What do you mean, Paul? Well, he gives us some examples. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. (laughs) Right there up front. The first one in the list of Paul's sins. And and he continues and goes on through, through half of the Ten Commandments. He says, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You cannot exploit someone else's weakness while you're loving them. Okay? If you really love them, you will not take advantage of them. If you really love them, you will not steal what is precious to them. If you really love them, you will not pressure them to give in to your selfish indulgence. You see, love really is the antidote to every sin. And if you're willing to put that at the center of your focus, you will be pursuing holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. God intended for marriage to be a safe place for us to give ourselves over to this wonderful gift of sexual intimacy. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, in Hebrews 13, 4, we read, marriage is honorable, honorable among all And the bed, that is the marriage bed, is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Do you see how consistent this is? Paul said this. The writer of Hebrews is saying this. So the holiness of love, expressed through self-control, is the foundation for for godly joy in Marriage. Now I want to give a specific note to singles. This is the youth pastor in me coming out. Okay, and I'm 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 going he or she in this because we now live in an era in which there are are women who are predators in this area. Okay, women who are seductors, and 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 that's reflected as we're going to see in the in the proverbs as well. But it's both men and women now. It's men and women. So let's just say it that way. If he or she really loves you, then he or she will protect your honor rather than pressuring you into sacrificing your virtue on the altar of his or her own selfish passions and desires. If you are now or if you ever will be in a relationship, a romantic relationship, and the person that you are involved with is pressuring you to yield in this area, they are not loving you. If they truly loved you, they would be protecting your virtue and honor rather than trying to steal it from you. 
In Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 4, we have this famous passage. I'm just going to read a small part of it. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. Now, in this passage, foolishness is being uh, personified as a, a wicked, evil, immoral woman. Okay? So that's the, a literary device. Wisdom is a, is, a, is a good woman. That's your sister. Wisdom is saying, don't do this. But notice what it says. This wisdom will, may keep you from the immoral woman or man, from the seductress or seducer, who flatters with her or his words. Her or his house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. That's how serious this is. Don't give in to this type of uh, attraction because it is the way that leads to death. The selfishness of sexual immorality is the surest path to fatherless children. I could add in here abortion to a series of unhappy marriages, to painful divorces, and to devastated, even adult, devastated children. That's the path you're on when you walk down the path of sexual immorality. But on the other hand, when love is expressed through holiness and moral purity, it is the surest and best path to a long and happy marriage and family. Now, I'm not saying there'll be no problems. There will be, but you'll get through those problems. But whenever you try to to improve upon God's design by going outside the boundaries of what you know to be His will, then you are on the wrong path. God is calling all of us to holiness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, continuing in our passage today, In verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Uncleanness in this context is the unholiness of defiling what God intended to be kept morally pure and clean. And that is sex within marriage. Holiness in this sense is the attribute of God that guards his created order from being defiled and ruined by human sins. Specifically, passion, lust, and perversion. When we talk about God being a holy God, he will not tolerate these things. You will reap what you sow. God's holiness, along with his wrath against these sins, defends his absolute goodness from being thwarted by the sins of others. That's why God will not tolerate or be in the presence of sin. So how is it that he can send his son to die for all of us sinners? He's doing it as a display of his mercy, his grace, his kindness. And he's intending to save us, not in those sins, to remain in those sins, but to rescue us from those sins and to have for himself a people who are zealous for being holy and pleasing to him. Our English phrase, stay focused, captures the idea of biblical holiness very well. To be truly holy is to stay focused on fulfilling the special purpose for which God has set you apart. That's what it means to be holy. 
Don't get distracted. Don't be defiled. Don't be deterred. Stay focused. Pursue holiness. In Peter's first epistle, in chapter 1 and verse 13, he writes something similar. I thought it would be good to bring in another point of view. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That means like if you're in a race and you're a guy wearing a, you know, a toga. <laughs> Have you ever tried to run in a toga? It's not easy. Okay, so you've got to pull up the edge of the toga and tuck it in your belt so you don't trip on your own toga while you're trying to run. So he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Tuck your toga in your belt of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when Jesus Christ returns as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Or, be focused, for I am focused. God's focused. He will not get distracted. This aspect of God's holiness is what is called a communicable attribute. Like his love, his goodness, his wisdom, his kindness. We are made in his image to such a degree that we also can walk in these things. And so to be godly means to be like God in the way he has intended by sharing in his holiness. And then finally, this is God's final word on the subject. So don't ask for another answer. You know, we can really mess things up by going to God and praying for another answer when we already know the answer. He says, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject a man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The reference here to the Holy Spirit is that it's the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. So when we reject the clear revelation of God's will, what we're doing is we're rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When God speaks to us so clearly through the Bible by means of his apostles and his prophets, he settles the question, and there is no higher court of appeal. And so this, is, this next statement was shared with me when I was a very young Christian, and I surely appreciate it. It has spared me a lot of grief. Beware. When we ask God to give us a different answer than what we already know to be his will, We are rejecting the Holy Spirit and asking to be deceived by an evil spirit. And that explains a lot of what we observe in the world today. So, God takes his holiness very seriously. He wants us to take it very seriously. Hebrews 12, 10, They indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. Speaking of our earthly fathers. But he, God, for our prophet that we may be partakers of his holiness. Isn't that beautiful? God is growing us up. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people and pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If this does not matter to you, 
then you are not saved. Okay? Let's, let me say that again. If, if holiness doesn't matter to you, then you don't get it. You don't got it. Okay? You are still lost in your sins. Because when you come to Christ and you know him and you love him, you will realize that you cannot be in relationship with the holy God and be pursuing ungodliness as though that was okay. You just don't understand, and you are not yet born again. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God takes his holiness very seriously. We have been sanctified by God, set apart for a special purpose. That purpose is to live our lives as an observable part of the glorious display of God's own goodness and wisdom and love and kindness. Therefore, sexual immorality is both evil and foolish, and it has no place in this glorious display of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness. May you take what's been taught here today and use it for your glory to grow us up and to bring us into a place, Lord, in which we truly do shine as lights in the midst of the darkness of this world. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name.